Quick question. Anybody get excited by any trailers that you saw for movies in the last year? Anyone? Deadpool, okay. Anyone else? Any other movies? Maybe Star Wars. Anyone hear this movie? Remember when that trailer first came out? I don't, I, I don't even remember what happened, but it, I, 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 I should have done some more research. But I remember on Facebook, in my email box, my phone blowing up with texts. Oh my gosh, have you seen this? I can't wait, blah, 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 blah. There's something about trailers that can be really powerful and create a sense of anticipation. I did a little research on how trailers work, why they're effective, why they're powerful. And what they do is a good trailer will connect to something that makes you feel alive. And there's lots of things that can do that. They said trailers are particularly powerful if you're in a bad mood and you go in to see a movie and there's a trailer for a funny movie that makes you laugh, you're significantly more likely to go see that movie. If you're in a good mood and you see a movie that makes you think or connect even to something sad you're much more likely to go see that movie. We connect to things emotionally, and it creates an anticipation of what will come. When you can add layers of things to that, like a sense of nostalgia, childhood memories, then things in trailers like Star Wars start to even build on themselves the type of anticipation that they can create. But things like this happen in our lives. I remember as a small kid, on a lark in grade school, I was asked, of all things, to be the mascot for our little grade school, the Buford Tigers. And I was like, huh, okay. So basically, you mean I get to wear a fuzzy suit and run around like an idiot and everyone's going to be watching me? Okay, absolutely. And I remember doing that, and there's this moment where... It's not just about an emotional connection. It's about feeling alive. I loved it. It touched something in me that was important to who I was. So then when I went to junior high, I thought, well, why don't I audition for this play? And I did, and I got in it. And that started me down this whole track. Next thing I knew, I'm going off to school to study theater and study acting. And if you know me, even just a few years ago, I was in an improv group that performed around the city because there's something about performing that makes me feel alive. It's peculiar to me, and there's lots of people like me too, but it might be something else for you. I remember reading the biography of John Belushi. I've, this whole improv, I've always loved people from Second City and Saturday Night Live. I don't know why. So I read the biography of John Belushi. If you don't know who he was... Uh, he was Michael Myers before there was Michael Myers. He was Chris Farley before there was Chris Farley. He was, uh, what's his name with the curly hair, the elf guy. Where's my name? <laughs> Will Ferrell. He was Will Ferrell before there was Will Ferrell, except he was the first. So he was so dynamic and popular that he really made Saturday Night Live what it was. He was the most important person. And I just saw a Rolling Stone poll of the greatest Saturday Night Live actors of all time. Number one, above Eddie Murphy even, who was huge was John Belushi because if, if it was not for him, they wonder if the thing would have even made it. Well, I read the story of his life, and he tells the story of this one time where he goes to an audition. He's a young teenager, and it's in someone's home. I don't remember. It was for a play, and he goes there and auditions, and it goes really, really well. And it trips something in him. It makes him feel alive. There's something that says, this is what I was made to do. This is what I'm hungry for. 
And he said at that moment, he said, that's what I want to do. And for the rest of his life, he pursued that. This series we're talking about, who are you? What are you trying to do with your life? How can we help? What are the things that make you feel alive? And this week, we're we're looking particularly at once you get started, how do you keep going? Because the expectation, we'll look more at this as we move along, is that it's not always going to go swimmingly well. There are going to be bumps in the road, sometimes tragedies, sometimes great disappointments. How can we have fuel for the whole journey? How can we keep going? And we're going to look at a, pa- a passage today that shows how Jesus gave those who would follow him as a guide a taste of something that made them feel alive and kept them going for the long haul. Sound interesting? A taste from Jesus that kept people going. Let's look at this. This is Mark chapter 9, the first 13 verses. And Jesus starts by saying, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing, what does rising from the dead mean? And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it was written about him. Now, this is a somewhat famous passage about Jesus. It doesn't quite get told as much as many of the other stories. I think because it's sort of this very cool story, like this amazing thing happens where Jesus is transfigured. He becomes white as snow. He glows. It's like light shining out of his whole person. But the meaning of the passage, I think, is sometimes obscure. What do we make of this? It's cool, but is this this more than just a cool story? Is there some real significance to it? And I think what we're going to see today is, yes, there is some big-time significance that goes way beyond just, wow, that was cool. Oh, that would have been neat to see but something that will affect how we live our lives. And that was essential that Peter, James, and John got to experience. So why is the transfiguration so important? Well, first, it's an experience that I, I think we all need. We need to experience the glory of God. You know, if you look closely at this passage, you'll notice that this moment, this look past the humanness of Jesus to something divine is not for the benefit of Jesus. Every way it's described, it's for Peter, James, and John. 
So Jesus is transfigured, it says, before them. Jesus converses with Elijah and Moses in front of them. The cloud surrounds them. And when God speaks affirming words about Jesus, he doesn't speak them to Jesus. He speaks them to Peter, James, and John. This is my son. And earlier in Mark's version of the life of Jesus, when Jesus is baptized, he has God the Father speak directly to Jesus. You are my son. Here it's like, this is my son. Listen to him. All of this is not for Jesus. It's for his disciples. It's for his followers. It's important to Jesus that they have this experience. He takes them up the mountain for this very moment. And what I think they're experiencing here is just a touch, just a taste, maybe a little bit more than just a taste, of the glory of God. And a lot of commentators, when they talk about this passage, they'll, they'll do something that I think is kind of fun. They put it alongside another story from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. The story of Moses when he goes up in the mountain and he uh, interacts with Jesus. And there's a lot of parallels. So in both stories, you have Moses. On, yep. On both stories, they're up on a mountain. In both stories, God comes in a cloud. In both stories, God speaks in a cloud. And then this interesting detail happens to Moses in his story. So when Moses is done with this encounter, his face is radiant. It glows. It shines. Because he's been in the presence of God and experienced his glory. And so Jesus is showing his disciples, his glory on a mountain in a way that recalls God's glory shown to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Jesus, I think, knows that they need to see this. And what I'm suggesting today is that we all need to experience the glory of God, that we hunger to experience the glory of God, to be taken up into it, for it to enfold us, enthrall us, cover us, as an experience. I mentioned C.S. Lewis last week. He's famous for writing about lions and witches and wardrobes. He was also a theologian. And he liked to write about these types of things. And he wrote this. He said, But the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves that, though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy themselves, that beauty grace and power of which nature is the image. This is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wood or the west wind could really sweep into the human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into the human face, but it won't. Or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. What Jesus is doing, in part, is showing the disciples his glory, showing his disciples what they can participate in if they'll follow him. 
See, in the Exodus story, Moses, as holy as he was, Moses is a pretty holy dude, yes? Can we agree? Moses is pretty cool, pretty holy, right? Moses, as holy as he was, was not allowed to look directly into the face of God. In fact, the story is, is that God says, I'm going to let my glory pass by you, but I'm going to push you in this crag of the mountain, and you can just sort of see my backside as I go away, but you can't see my face, or you die. But in this story, we have the followers of Jesus experiencing the glory of God, seeing the radiance of God, and living. They experience that. And as they do, they're not just experiencing something good, which certainly they are, but they're experiencing something that they are called or invited to participate in. In seeing Jesus transfigured, they're getting a sneak peek, a foretaste of resurrection and the power that is at work in it, the same power that Jesus promises later will be at work in them. And this is what keeps his followers going. This is the fuel for them. Jesus knows that his disciples will need to be aware of this, particularly in the light of the conversations that Jesus has begun to have with his disciples. So this passage starts with the phrase, six days later. Six days later after what? Well, it's six days later after the passage we looked at last week, where Jesus, for the first time, starts to talk to them about his own death. And for the first time, he specifically begins to teach them that he's going to be handed over and killed before rising again. And that if they want to follow him, do you remember this part from last week? That their path will lead to the cross as well. And his disciples have now, they've had six days to mull this over. And they're probably freaking out a little bit if they're really thinking about it. They need a taste of God's glory that will help them through the difficult days ahead because it's not going to be easy. You know, a few years ago, uh, a book came out that shocked a lot of people. It was a book um, which was sort of taken from some memoirs or some diary entries that had been found of Mother Teresa that had never been published before. And what shocked people was how dark her reflections were, how much despair you could feel in reading them. One of the things she writes is this. She says, at one point, she says, this untold darkness, this loneliness, this continual longing for God, which gives me that pain deep down in my heart. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There's no God in me. Sometimes I just hear my heart cry out, my God, and nothing else comes. And this, in quotes like this, were so shocking because for so many people who met her, she was so so full of life and love and joy. How could it be that someone was suffering so much could be so loving and giving and full of life? Well, if you know the whole story of Mother Teresa, and this is something I only stumbled on a, a couple years ago, You'll, you'll know that there's a, there's a moment in her life where she touches the glory of God. Father Langford wrote the story of this experience of her that she would refer to as her inspiration day. And he writes this, As the train ascended into the clean, cool mountain air, this is a little long, so a little story time by Brad. 
but I think it's worth it. Sister Teresa would have looked out her window on the lush, thickening forests. Trains were slow in that day, not because the engines were weak, but because the track was unreliable. A trip of several hours could, could turn into days, as late summer heat would buckle rails and add hours to the journey. But when moving, the passenger's mind could ride the rhythm of the train's progress and easily move into prayer. Somewhere on this ordinary journey, in the heat, in the gathering shadows, in the noisy, crowded car, something extraordinary happened. At some unknown point along the way, there in the depths of Mother Teresa's soul, the heavens opened. And for decades, all she would tell her sisters of that life-changing moment was that she received a call within a call, a divine mandate to leave the convent and go to serve the poor in the slums. But something incomparably greater and more momentous had transpired as well. We now know, thanks to early hints in her letters and conversations and her own later admissions, that she had been graced with an overwhelming experience of God, an experience of such power and depth, of such intense light and love, as she would later describe it, that by the time her train pulled into the station at Darjeeling, she was no longer the same. Though no one knew it at the time, Sister Teresa had become Mother Teresa. For the still young nun, barely 36 years old, Another journey was beginning, an inner journey with her God that would turn every aspect of her life upside down. The grace of the train would not only transform her relationships to God, but to everyone and everything around her. Within eight short days, the grace of this moment would carry her to newfound inner fire and back down that same mountainside and into a new life. You know, Perhaps one of the reasons that Mother Teresa had such an impact on the world is that a touch of glory prepared her to experience suffering in a way that changed her and empowered her to change the world rather than be destroyed by it. She had experienced a foretaste of God's glory in this world, and she wanted more and was willing to let suffering mold her into a person that could be a part of seeing this glory come down off of the mountain and engage the people in the valleys below. The valleys. The joy of loving Jesus, if you read the whole story, comes often from the joy of sharing in his sufferings. And the message here is do not allow yourself to be troubled or distressed, but believe in the joy of the resurrection. In all of our lives, as in the life of Jesus, the resurrection has to come. The joy of Easter has to dawn. But only after the death. And this, I think, is what Jesus wanted to be in the hearts of his disciples. To follow Jesus is to hold on to this hope, redemption, resurrection, renewal after the suffering, and to taste it and long for more and expect for more now and in the hereafter. And ultimately, we see this is what Peter took from this experience. So, At one point, Peter is writing letters to the church. Some of them became Christian scripture. And in one of those letters, he writes to refresh the memory of a church that he's trying to encourage. And he writes this. This is years later. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, With him I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter held this experience in his heart. He never let it go. For the rest of his life, that taste kept him going. And Jesus wants his followers to live life with a sense of the glory of God. Something bigger. Something farther reaching. We need this. So we need that experience. We also need what I'm calling a vision. We need to see who Jesus really is. That's another big theme in this passage. So Jesus here in this passage, if you didn't pick up on it, he's shown as being above all and the culmination of everything. That's the theological way to put it. But in practical terms, in Exodus, the story we mentioned earlier, after experiencing the glory of God, Moses had this glowing face that would shine as he reflected the glory of God to others. But this story is a stark contrast to what happens in Moses' story because for Moses, the glory was derivative. So Moses reflected a glory that was not his own. For Jesus, the glory is essential, which means he's reflecting a glory that is his. It's different. It's another level of glory. And many people read this passage and they look at the story of here's Jesus surrounded by Moses and Elijah. And they see him not only put above those prophets, but those prophets historically have been taken to represent parts of the Bible. So Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And that's traditionally been the way that the Hebrew scriptures were divided into the law and the prophets. So it's not just that Jesus is being put above these great historical figures. He's also being put above the scriptures written about them. Listen to him. God is the father is putting Jesus above everything else. Now, the author Mark here, I don't think he's saying that we don't need the Bible anymore. I don't think he's saying that the Bible isn't the word of God or that it's not inspired. Far from it. In fact, here this morning, we are looking at the Bible because we don't think Mark is saying that. Every Sunday, we try and learn from the inspiration of Scripture. We encourage its study. We encourage interaction with it as a foundational way to connect to God. So for Mark, what he's doing could make some people who love the Bible perk up a little bit. But don't give Mark too hard of a time. He's actually just doing what you see other authors doing who describe the life of Jesus. So if you read the story of Jesus, as told by Luke, after Jesus' resurrection, he, has, he reports the story of Jesus having this interaction with his followers. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. John does a very similar thing. When he writes his version of the life of Jesus, he says this. Jesus says this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. 
All of these authors are pointing to the role that Scripture is meant to have in our lives. Namely, that Scriptures, all of them were about Jesus. That they were designed to point people to him. And that in him was the fulfillment, the reality, the ultimate authority that Scriptures were pointing to. I think Mark, I think Luke, I think John would all agree, you need more than the Bible. You need Jesus. That's what they're pointing to. They want people to see Jesus as he is. They're trying to elevate him. I don't know if you realize this. Some parts of the Bible are intentionally unclear. Some parts of the Bible on purpose are vague. Did you know that? Jesus teaches this. Jesus tells this great parable. It's famous, the parable of the soils. You should read it. It's awesome. But right in the middle, when everyone's confused, they have no idea what this parable is, Jesus quotes the Hebrew scriptures and says this, that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So it sounds like Jesus is like, this is really confusing, so people won't turn and be forgiven? Isn't that kind of shocking? But it doesn't end there. What happens is people are confused. They hang around. They don't know what to make of this story. They don't know what to make of Jesus. So some people come up to Jesus, and they ask him about the parable. They engage with him. And to those people, he says, to you, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given. What's the secret? The secret is to engage with Jesus. Some things are purposefully, in an inspired way, planned by God, vague, unclear. Why? So that we have to engage with God. So we can't just take a book, break it down, put it back together, ask a question, add it all up, and have the right answer. It's not meant to do that. The Bible is meant to point us to a person, to Jesus. The Bible is not meant to be truth. It's meant to point us to truth, who is a person. What did Jesus say about himself in the scriptures? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible and the authors of the Bible And I believe the inspired spirit that helped create those scriptures want us to engage with Jesus. That's the highest goal, not to give us all the answers. Because if we think we have all the answers, or that if we just work hard enough, we can get all the answers, we can become some incredibly unloving people. We need Jesus. Not a system, not a code, not a theology. All those things can be very important and very helpful, but they're not Jesus. So some things are vague on purpose, according to Jesus, so that we have to come to him, so that we have to depend on him and not ourselves and how smart we are, how we can figure it all out. That takes nothing away from the Bible that it's inspired. Jesus also said, 
Nothing in the Bible will ever pass away until it's all fulfilled. He said, not, I love the King James word, not a jot or a tittle will disappear. We don't talk like that anymore. It's not saying the Bible isn't inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the things we know about Jesus, man, is because it points us to him. But it's not Jesus. This keeps us humble, learning, seeking, engaging with Jesus. This keeps his followers engaged. That's what we need for this journey. We don't need a manual for the journey. We don't need a rule book or a code book. We need a guide, a person, a relationship. We need God to be real in our lives. We experience his glory. We follow him. That's what we need. Engaging the person who is the truth. This is what will sustain Jesus' followers because life, what they need, is not in the Bible or anything else. According to the Bible, it's in Jesus. So therefore, along with experiencing the glory of God, we must hopefully pursue, long for, seeing Jesus as he is. Not perfect, but better and better. It's a process that is a process that takes time, that's never finished, that requires humility, that keeps us rooted, fights off judgmentalism. But it's not easy. Notice that Peter's first reaction is to build shelters for Jesus and his visitors, right? It says he was so scared he didn't know what else to do. Right? I love that little parenthetical thing there. But building those shelters misses the very reasons that the transfiguration was so important. So here's a reminder. We need to be reminded of Jesus' mission, why he came. One of the reasons that Peter's shelters ideas was so misguided is that it makes the mountaintop the end, not the cross. Peter would have kept Jesus up on the mountain where people could travel and visit him along with the ancient prophets. But the power for transformation and renewal that would enter the world came through the cross. And the disciples just aren't quite getting this. Let me read this. Verse 9 says, And they were, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that they'd seen what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing rising from the dead and what that meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wish, just as written about him. And so he's referring to the appearance of Elijah here, but he's also, if you hear the whole story, referring to John the Baptist who's come, who was a prefigure, who was beheaded. They did everything they wanted to him. So Jesus follows Peter, James, and John. They see this appearance of Elijah. They hear about John the Baptist and think, okay, Elijah's come. Time to take over. And they want to skip the cross and go right to the kingdom of God and their understanding of it. But the work to be done, the renewal that needs to happen, the people that need help, the systems that need to change are all down the mountain, in the valley 
And the transformation comes through suffering and through the cross. The world needed a savior, not a shrine. And Jesus was on a mission to renew the whole world. And they couldn't stay on the mountaintop. They had to go to the cross. And Jesus' mission and what he invites us to goes way beyond mountaintop experiences. It goes to the ends of the earth. And this is what keeps his followers on task. This is a reminder that we need. It's not about the mountaintop. It's about what comes next. Mother Teresa had to go down the mountain. And if you buy into the discoveries you're making about who you are and what God's called you to do, it's going to take you, if it's worth anything, through some really difficult things. That's why the taste of the glory of God is so important. That's why in our church we don't just want to sing about the glory of God or the presence of God or the Holy Spirit. We want to experience the glory of God, the presence of God, and the Holy Spirit. Actually, we don't need the idea of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. So as I wrap up here, just two quick things to keep in mind. These aren't the only ways to experience the glory of God, but these are two particularly powerful ones. One is through worship. We spend so much time in our services singing songs to and about God. Why? Well, he deserves it, yes. But we also just hope, pray, and long for his presence during those times. If you read the scriptures, you see that happens. People worship God and his glory descends. So that's one way. And the second way, I think, is to rethink suffering. It's inevitable. Which is good because it means when you experience some suffering, not all suffering, but some of it means that nothing's necessarily wrong because it's the same story that Jesus lived. The question is, will it kill you or complete you? And suffering in the light of glory can actually transform you in ways that bring life and change even to the world around you. Let's pray. Jesus, there's a lot of big ideas in this passage. It'd be nice if we could just figure everything out. But it's even better to find you and engage with you. That's what we need. Today, this morning, send your presence here, we ask. Help us find ways to connect to you that are real. We experience you alive and resurrected. Show us your glory.